Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan is proposing a tax credit that would allow Georgians to send money directly to their local law enforcement department of their choice. We'll hear who's supporting the legislation and who's against the measure. Veteran and award-winning journalist Stanley Dunlap from the Georgia Recorder has been covering this, and he'll join Closer Look in just a moment with all the details. Plus, Cobb County Commission Chair Lisa Cupid on how the county is responding to the surge in COVID-19 cases. All important conversations in just a moment. But first this, yes, we know there were large crowds attending numerous events this past Labor Day weekend, some implementing strict COVID-19 measures, others not so much. Georgia is still in the midst of the largest surge of COVID-19 cases it's ever experienced. And if there's a trend to understand from last year, the biggest post-holiday surge came in the wake of Thanksgiving, Christmas, and the New Year and peaked in January of 2021 course, straining a healthcare system that had already weathered nearly a year of fighting the pandemic. And Georgia has steadily remained among the states with a low full vaccination rate, which according to the CDC is 41 percent. However, the State Department of Public Health's COVID dashboard shows 44 percent of eligible Georgians are fully vaccinated. In related pandemic news, well, COVID-19 is taking a toll on the UGA football team. The dogs are coming off a road victory against Clemson. Good for them. But now, as Georgia prepares for its first home game against the University of Alabama at Birmingham, or UAB, head coach Kirby Smart says the virus caseload is the highest within the team since last fall. We have three or four guys out with COVID, and we have uh, a couple staff members that have been out with COVID here recently. So for us, we're at our highest spike. And people are talking about vaccination. Well, these are people that are vaccinated. I mean, we're talking about breakthroughs. And so that concerns you, not only for the players on your team that are unvaccinated, that are playing and not playing, because we want everybody to be safe, um, but it concerns me for the players that are vaccinated that we could lose one. Well, the University of Georgia is not requiring masks for the Dogs' first home game, and a sellout crowd of 92,000-plus is expected at Sanford Stadium for the game. In other news, it's going to be a long, and I do mean long, full day for the Atlanta City Council meeting today. Why? Well, discussion regarding the vote to approve a new training grounds for the city's police and the fire department is on the agenda. It's a controversial $90 million training center, which will be located on 85 acres of city-owned forest land in unincorporated DeKalb County. Now, there are supporters and opponents of the plan, including opposition from some neighborhood and environmental groups. The training center would include everything from classrooms to a four-story drill tower for the fire department to an emergency vehicle operator course and a firing range. 
Officials say they're having to rent many of these facilities in the meantime. But opponents say it would disrupt the regrowth of the forest at the old Atlanta prison farm and fails to respect the history of the site. And we should note, it is unlikely the actual vote will take place today. Why? Well, given there are 15 hours plus of public comment that will have to be divided up between today and tomorrow, 15 hours plus of public comment. The vote on the training facility could occur sometime tomorrow morning when the Atlanta City Council resumes the meeting. Y'all can stay up and listen. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan will not be seeking re-election in 2022. He made that clear months ago. But he is pushing for state lawmakers to take up a measure that would allow Georgians to send donations to law enforcement departments of their choice and return get a tax credit. Why? Well, let's turn to veteran journalist and award-winning journalist Stanley Dunlap. He covers government and politics for the Georgia Recorder. He's making his debut on Closer Look, so no pressure, Stanley. Welcome to the program. I appreciate it. Hopefully you'll take it easy on me. <laughs> Before we, let's uh, back up and inform our listeners. I gave a very brief description of Lieutenant Jeff Duncan's, uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan's proposed proposal here. What are the details here? What exactly does he see how this happening and, and basically the, the importance of it through his lens. Well, he's, he's modeling after uh, the uh, rural tax hospital credit that he came up with where, uh, in that case, the idea was to uh, make donations that would then in turn help the struggling hospitals hopefully stay afloat. Um, and in this case, he's trying to model the similar program for law enforcement. And so the idea is that there would be a $250 million annual cap. So that's the maximum amount that could be um, of tax credits going to be applied annually. And an individual person could, it would have to be for local uh, mm-hmm. sheriffs, the police department, and you would decide, you could say, I want to give to the Roswell Police Department. Mm-hmm. You may be a citizen of Roswell and you want to help out your local police department, or maybe you're originally from Savannah and you you know, you live maybe somewhere else now, but you want to help out the Savannah Police Department. And so what you would do is you would go through, uh, make your donations. The money would have to be spent for hiring new police officers, training police officers, or increasing pay. And in return, you would get, if you paid a $1,000 donation, you would get a $1,000 um, dollar for dollar tax credit at the state level. So, so it's kind of an incentive program to get you to make donations that would then in turn about local law enforcement agencies. So, Lisa, for individuals, what about uh, could companies or, or other entities, could they also? Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, corporations. 
and we've seen that they sometimes reap the big, biggest benefits from this uh, program, just from the rural hospital tax credit program, where their uh, tax liability really shrinks uh, once they make some donations in, in, in kind. And so, yeah, that'll be, there's a maximum amount for individuals, families, and then corporations as well. But yeah, we'll, we'll see businesses that will definitely be involved um, if this program comes to fruition. Stanley, what is the max? Um, the max, I don't, I think they're working out details. Mm-hmm. I believe the max for was 5000 for the rural hospital for individuals, 10000 for families, and then it was some, something tied to like 75% of some kind of tax liability for corporations, but uh, that's still being worked mm-hmm. out. But but that is, I think, with, just talking with Jeff Duncan, it sounds like that'll probably be the same uh, premise there for the, uh, this one as well. And Stanley, so Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan's thinking is that this is to help those departments to help them what in terms of hiring more uh, personnel, training? Yeah, it, it, and it's definitely in response to what we've seen from Governor Kemp, Speaker Walston, and Lieutenant Governor Duncan and the, the Republicans really uh, trying to make a crime, especially in Atlanta, a priority for this upcoming special session and into, into next year and Really, it's also going to be a, a big campaign uh, battle for for some of the, for like for instance in the governor's race, as well. But yeah, the idea is that we want to bolster and beef up police um, reinforcement, and and one way we can do that is increase pay, improve their moral morale and spirits, and uh, some of the maybe the challenges that they they've been feeling recently in recent years and stress. Maybe that'll help them out. And also the idea is for, for Duncan's plan training, mm-hmm. which, you know, is a big emphasis, I think, from no matter what side that you want to have your officers properly trained to handle uh, tough situations or situations that can get out of hand pretty quickly. Yeah. Let, let me ask you, Stanley, to your knowledge, do you know right now, even though if it's being reworked, would there be any stipulations in terms of what these donations could be used for? Like it could only be used for hiring or training or resources that would directly help the department. And if they need a new, I don't know, police, yeah. police car, patrol car. I mean, are there any stipulations? Right. Under, under Duncan, what he's proposing is strictly for salary, uh, salary pay increases, hiring new officers and training. That would be it. Now, the question is, how does he model that? Because then, I mean, essentially, you're donating in kind to government, which, mm-hmm. you know, is, is different when you take the rural hospitals program. You know, rural hospitals can have their own authorities and, you know, they, they can be kind of, they may get some money from government, but they aren't necessarily government entities. And so this is a little bit different. So it'll be interesting to see how he tries to finagle that. So, you know, wouldn't make a donation necessarily to your public works department or salaries for public works employees. And so that's a different concept than normal. Uh, that was my next question. To your knowledge, is this common or rather sort of crafted unusually, given that if you modeled it after the rural hospital tax credit, given that you are donating to an entire system as opposed to your local sheriff or police department? That's different. Yeah, it is. And it's also... Two hundred fifty million sounds like a lot, but there are over five hundred different local and sheriff's offices in Georgia alone, and and you know when you spread that out, who's to say maybe the departments that need that we need the money the most aren't getting it because you can designate 
who is going towards. And so there are some questions on, you know, how that would, would work out. I mean, mm-hmm. we've seen the rural tax credit hospital have some success, but there's also been a sense where since then we've, you know, had some hospitals that have had to close. And so um, it, it'll be interesting concept to see how this gets presented uh, once the final details are, are ready. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by veteran journalist, award-winning journalist, Stanley Dunlap. He covers government and politics for the Georgia Recorder. And we're talking about Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan's proposal that would allow Georgians to send donations to law enforcement departments of their choice, the police departments or sheriff departments. Well, as we can expect, Stanley, there uh, was some um, opposition to this, as you know, in a July 13 tweet. Former Democratic House Minority Leader Bob Trammell, who lost uh, re-election after the Republicans mounted a million-dollar campaign against him. But he tweeted, quote, honest question, does this mean that someone can get a tax credit for a kickback payment? Seems like this proposal hasn't been thought out much. Nothing good about legalizing corruption, close quote, from Bob Trammell there. Any other? <laughs> now, he's not in office, so he can just tweet away. Right. Um, but uh, opposition from any other current sitting uh, Georgia legis- legislatures that have come out against this or for it? Uh, well, uh, I mean, there there have been some, and I've talked to a, a few myself, but, but yeah, I mean, I think this tax credit plan, and there, there's one where you talk about the potential of Curry in favor, but there are also many Democrats who have, uh, you know, had some concerns about too much reliance on tax credits instead of properly funding, you know, uh, departments or, or themselves, for instance, why not expand Medicaid for rural, mm-hmm. instead of doing a rural hospital tax credit program? And so, yeah, I think I think most Democrats will have some issues. Although Jeff Duncan has said that he has talked to some Democrats who were, have been in favor. He hadn't, you know, set their names, but he said it's time they do support this uh, idea. Let's shift for a moment and talk about Lieutenant Jeff. Duncan, because obviously he's not seeking re-election, and he did fall out of favor with a lot of the heavy Republican majority here because of his stance against uh, former President Donald Trump and those who were supporting the lie, because that's what it was, that the election had been stolen or there was something nefarious taking place here in in Georgia in terms of uh, Biden beating Trump here. Is this also you think to curry favor with the Republicans in case, you know, folks change their mind, Duncan could decide to come back down the line? Yeah, I mean, Duncan's a young, a young guy. I'm, I'm not sure of his exact age, but I, I would be surprised if he stays out of politics for the rest of his career. But I do think he really is intent, um, focused on kind of the Republican 2.0. And whether that's four years from now, he feels like he can run, or eight years. I, I would not be surprised dude, if politics does start to shift and there's not as much Trump-centric or Trump. Trump doesn't dominate maybe the state um, Republicans as much. I think you could see Duncan's return to politics, but um, I do think it'll be a little bit down the line before we see that. Well, let's talk about uh, Duncan's Republican 2.0 overhaul. Uh, he has said that, look, it's time for the Republican Party to, you, you know, overhaul after what has happened under, you know, former President Donald Trump. He sees this as a, also maybe a, a starting point for him. What are you hearing from other fellow Republicans? What have they told you? about supporting not just his measure, but but this overhaul of the Republicans, especially here in Georgia? I, I think there's a, a minority of, of Republicans we've seen that all along have been the ones um, like, that have been spoken, that have been uh, most outspoken about the uh, 
accusations that there was fraud. And, and so I think we've seen some, you know, a vocal minority of those who, who all along have said that we need to, you know, publicans need to move on and that, that the election was fair and balanced. And so I think those are the ones who, who continue to, you know, support the 2.0. But I also think there's probably a lot, there are probably some a fear of Trump that if you are at least publicly, um, you know, go against Trump, that it will hurt your political career. If, you know, if Duncan was running, he would probably face a tough up- uphill battle for getting reelected. And so I think a lot of Republicans who do support the 2.0 um, will probably do so behind the scenes a little bit more than just out, 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 out in front and publicly, at least from the start. Stanley, let me ask you, how likely is it that there will be a special uh, fall legislative session here? Uh, it sounds like, I mean, it's pretty pretty likely that it'll take place. And we'll we'll see quite a few different things. But, you know, the tough on crime, which is Kemp is pushing, and that'll come up. Um, so, yeah, I think it'll be, you know, this fall we, we will have a special session. Any idea then who could take this then? Uh, obviously, it probably would have to start start in the Senate more than likely then. Any idea? Does, does Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan have folks that are willing to, to carry this for him? This measure, I, yeah, I think this would Republicans would, would be behind this, and so um, yeah, I, I don't think he would have a problem at least getting the Republican leadership and getting someone to kind of carry the bill for him uh, through this. And that because it sounds like there's one accord from Governor Kemp, Boston, and Duncan, and that they will probably all support each other's proposals. And Boston has his own, which is seventy-five million dollars. Mm-hmm for uh, reinvestment in state, you know, state public safety and GBI. But I think, yeah, I think Duncan would have successfully getting Republicans on board. Meanwhile, Stanley, are there any other measures related to public safety or, or policing here in Georgia that we, we might see come up in this special fall session? Yeah, as I mentioned, the uh, Speaker Walston mm-hmm. proposal was to add $75 million to the budget, and that would part of it would go for hiring, uh, you know, state troopers in Atlanta. Um, there would be a one-time bonus, $1,000 bonus for uh, police officers. And then there are other like investments for prosecute, money for, for prosecutor salaries and public defender salaries. And the GBI would give money. And so it was kind of across the board of mental health services. And so his is, is uh, you know, kind of touching a wide array of different parts of public safety. And Stanley, might we see a little bit of, uh, I guess, a crowded uh, field of, of folks trying to get some measures in? Because, look, we are going into 2022. You know, it's a huge election year. Uh, what do you make of possibly what the Republicans, I guess, strategy would be in the General Assembly? Uh, I don't think we'll see. I know last year we saw so many, you know, dozens of election bills that were filed. I don't think we would see that many, nearly that many uh criminal justice or criminal or law enforcement bills, but we still will, we will see a decent amount. And even Democrats on their end will probably follow back up on some of theirs, which is more focused on the reform and body cameras and more like police accountability. So we, we'll see probably a fair share of, of uh, bills from both Republicans and Democrats this session and, and kind of sort out which ones have the best chance of uh, actually passing. Meanwhile, we've got that R word, redistricting. <laughs> <laughs> what do you make of all of that? Um, it, it's going to be a mess. Uh, <laughs> that, that's, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> uh, uh, I remember talking to a, 
top legislator, one of the leading legislators in their party, uh, maybe a year or so ago, and he said it was use a few expletives to explain what the situation is going to be like, and I think we'll see that that Republicans have control and they'll be able to kind of dominate. But uh, you'll see a lot of outcry and push from from Democrats to say to make it a more fair process. Well, Stanley, before I let you go, meanwhile, so we are still in a pandemic. Anything COVID-19 related, too? Uh, that's unfortunately every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the latest is everybody keeping up with um, how the hospitals are handling this and their capacity and, and in school. So I think those are the, and, and obviously pushing people to get vaccinations. Is, you know, But, uh, yeah, I think hospitals, capacity, and, and schools and how they're handling outbreaks and Going to virtual, mm-hmm. students having to stay home, and you know the fight over masks. I think we're going to continue to see that play out for the rest of the school year. Well, and let's get to this too, Stanley. Before I let you go, because lawmakers, there were some who didn't want to adhere to the mask mandates. And and do, are you hearing if if a vaccination is is going to be required? Show your vaccination card. You know how will all this work? I mean, any idea about the logistics if they when they when they come back for this special fall session? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. That's an interesting question. I, I'm not sure what, I mean, we've seen Governor Kemp trying to be opposed to any government-mandated vaccines, and so uh, there may be, maybe it's a signal that that wouldn't happen with the state legislature. But we do know that even some of the, the uh, mem- a lot of the members who maybe before, when the pandemic first hit and came back and weren't really taking this seriously, we saw much more mask wearing. We saw much more consistent testing after some early hiccups um, early in this year's session. And so I don't think we'll see a government mandate or it's kind of up to the Senate and House leadership too if they want to, how they want to test I mean, their requirements for vaccines. But I'm sure they'll push for it without actually requiring it. But well, that's, still a, that's still a question. Yeah, I mean, you're going to have some committee meeting hearings i mean you know those rooms are not very big Stanley. Right. so that, i mean and you've covered this how did they do last time in terms of practicing whatever the measures were in place you know it's kind of hard to social distance where you got you know hundreds of you know legislators you know standing up and objection and getting up and moving around and all that stuff yeah um but i don't know if there was just a consistent social distancing and I covered the Senate in there and it's you know a smaller room mm-hmm. and so it's harder you can't just sit and spread out in, in desks and have everybody situated whereas in the house they were able to spread out on the floor and they have a much larger balcony mm-hmm. and so they were able to, to to kind of a little bit more socially distance once they were like actually in in the chambers and so I think we'll probably see the same process for us media in the Senate they had us up top up in the gallery and we were so I mean, they they kept it pretty strict as far as wearing masks and socially distancing and and even the senators and legislators were supposed to be you know wearing masks for the most part and yeah you saw some pretty consistent some hit and miss but and i think we'll probably see that play out again if it's the same type of uh kind of rules this session coming up All right, veteran journalist Stanley Dunlap. He covers government and politics with the Georgia Recorder. Stanley, thanks so much for taking time and giving us an update on this proposed tax credit that Um, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan is proposing. Appreciate it. uh, Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on.
And Close Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. A programming note for tomorrow, a conversation with Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Now with several, several high-profile cases to prosecute, Willis will talk about them all. Also, what's the impact of the Delta variant on Georgia's economy and how will it be felt? Will it be mild or severe? Well, there's only one guy to ask. Well, it could be a few, but we're going to ask Rajiv Dewan from Georgia State University's Economic Forecasting Center as he lays out his prediction that's coming up tomorrow on Closer Look. Meanwhile, speaking of the pandemic, 19 months in and still going with the COVID-19 pandemic and the deadly virus, of course, is still raging. Different day, same challenge, whether it's federal, state, county or local. All trying to figure out how to combat and mitigate the spread of the virus. And, of course, now the highly transmissible Delta variant. It all continues. Of course, that includes in Cobb County. Lisa Cupid chairs the County Board of Commissioners and recently signed a declaration of emergency for Cobb County. We're going to talk about all that as Chairwoman Lisa Cupid joins me now. Welcome back to the program. Good afternoon and good to see you. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, Let's look at, I think it's been a while since we talked to you, but now... As we heard, we, I mentioned 19 months in, and you look at uh, the county as a whole. I think uh, if you go by the State Department of Public Health coronavirus dashboard, you all are just a little bit over 51%, or about 51% full vaccination rate. But are you happy with that? Well, we're certainly glad that we finally hit that milestone. That doesn't mean we don't have a ways to go to increase our vaccinations, however. And so we are pushing um, for anyone 12 and above to get vaccinated. Are there any populations that you're specifically concerned about as well? Now, you can also look at the percent of populations with, with at least one dose by race at the uh, Department of Public Health's uh, website. But when you break it down, still, uh, Black and Latinos are behind um, their white counterparts here in terms of residents who have at least one dose. Yes, that still remains the case. And our Cobb and Douglas Public Health have been very helpful in meeting with me to address inequity with respect to the vaccine. And that includes how we target communities of color. And so they have been able to shift some of their operations to provide mobile service to go into communities as opposed to putting it on the residents to have to go into our facilities. And while I'm extremely concerned around communities of color, there's a certainly Um, age group that I'm more concerned about, which is our youngest people in our community who can't get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at our vaccination spectrum, those that we targeted initially, our seniors, they are close to 100% being vaccinated. But as you go down the age spectrum, um, you will see that falls off almost with every um, 10 years. And um, looking at our population of those 18 and under, it's um, far behind where we want to be. So you definitely want to improve that, at least for 12 to 18, you want to improve that. But I want to focus to not only just the 12 to 18, but those who are not obviously eligible for the vaccination, which are our youngins here. And this is where the school systems come in. And through your lens, what challenges, concerns do you have with how some of the local school districts you know, their, their impl- the implementation of their measures, what concerns you? Hmm. Certainly there's a vulnerability amongst our young people that cannot get vaccinated. And as you may be aware at the county, we put in an emergency order because we recognize the, so- the soar of the Delta variant and how that was impacting COVID transmission. 
However, if you look at what's been done in our school system, they haven't taken the same amount of precaution that we've taken, um, at least internally in the county. And that has a lot of parents concerned and a lot of them reaching us. But my you know, concern also is the limitation that we do have. And I've shared with many parents is that um, the school system has complete jurisdiction in how they um, address their operations. And so while we may recognize some things um, from a county perspective and put forward some measures on our end, we are limited in what we can do in protecting that population once they go into the schools. You are limited, but you all, well, let's back up. You limited. Okay. Do you have a good relationship with, let's say, Cobb County School District, the school board? Have y'all been able to have conversations? Certainly, we've had some discussions with respect to it. I think they've become more challenged um, as the Delta variant has increased. Um, the school superintendent and I both serve on the Cobb Douglas Public Health Board. And in fact, this evening we'll have um, opportunity to have um, some conversations with our peers with respect to this matter. Well, you both serve on that board, then obviously you are following the recommendation from the public health departments or I can say that we have. Um, it's certainly, you know, it's been our the conversations that I've had with Cobb Douglas Public Health and also with our local health care system that drove me to put that um, that emergency order in place. You just could not deny the data and the burden that this is placing on our health care system. And so that's what uh, moved me. I, I can't tell you what is driving the school superintendent um, to make the decisions that um, he is making. Have you talked to him? Yes. Have you asked him what drives you to make this decision? Yes. And, you know, whether or not he shared in full or in part is for him to um, is for him to address. I do know that, you know, he has people sim- similar as I have, you know, constituents that have varying opinion on this matter. And he is taking all of that into consideration and t- as he's making his decisions and, is, and has arrived at the conclusion that he has um, come to with respect to the school board. Again, me looking at the various data and listening to various constituents, I took a a different path based on that. And so I think the public will have opportunity to hear um, us discuss that openly um, tonight at our public health meeting. Well, we have continued to invite uh, Superintendent Chris Ragsdale on the program. He's been on, I think, a while ago, but um, apparently he is not available or doesn't want to be on the show. I'm not sure which one it is because we haven't really been given an answer. But listen, there is an also a faction that is an online petition with nearly, I believe, 5,000 signatures at, at, at the beginning of last month calling for his resignation. Obviously, you have two factions here. What role can you all play then? I know you talked about public comment and you all getting together. But as you know, yeah. Chairwoman Cupid, I mean, kids are getting the virus some say, is it school-based? Y'all can have that argument. You, At the end of the day, you all, as entities, whether they're separate or not, you all still need to govern by what's best for the county, correct? For all your citizens. I absolutely agree. So why can't y'all get it together? 
Well, again, as I shared, I believe that we are from a Cobb County government perspective, but you know, similar to the relationship that you have amongst your peers, you have the ability to influence your peers that you may serve with on the same radio station, but you serve together. You don't have jurisdiction over their programs. And I don't have jurisdiction over the Cobb County school system. Now, certainly sure. we have a relationship. We have the ability to communicate and influence. We are receiving the same a set of data from Cobb Public Health. Um, and, you know. I, but can y'all partner maybe with vaccination for those students that are, that are eligible or staff members? Can y'all partner on certain initiatives? Certainly. Give out debit cards or something that works, works for Cobb County. <laughs> You know, and we've been having that discussion internally in the county as well. Y'all got and, the money. And we're fortunate, yes. Both of our systems, uh, county government and um, the school system, have both received ARP funds. So this is, to me, is not a matter of resources. It's about political will. And, you know, at the end, and it's about political will to an extent, mm -hmm. because the superintendent serves at the pleasure of those who are elected. And so they could have the ability to sway, but also he has the ability to make decisions on his own as well. And again, he's taken the path that he's taken, but certainly I recognize the ability we have to influence and I recognize we have the resources. So saying that, you know, we, we cannot afford to put um, certain measures or more measures in place would, um, would not necessarily be true. If you're just tuning in, I'm joined by Cobb County Board of Commissions Chairwoman Lisa Cupid, and we're talking about how they're trying to combat the rise in COVID cases in Cobb County. Let's go back to this emergency, this de declaration of emergency for Cobb County, what it permits and what it entails so folks understand clearly what this is all about. Certainly. What we wanted to do is at least impose a mask requirement in our county facilities, recognizing we have a lot of the public comes in for meetings to conduct business and for recreation. We wanted to create the safest um, environment as possible. We recognize that we're limited. We cannot impose this on other organizations in the county. But we also know, I also know from my relationships with other um, businesses and with leaders of other organizations is that the county can still set itself up as a model and they can um, look to what we're doing and feel more comfortable in implementing more measures in their spaces. And so we felt very comfortable in what we did to protect our public, but also to encourage all of our stakeholders in the county to do what they can. And Cobb and Douglas Health, Public Health, you all are partnering with Wellstar to open two new testing sites as well? Yes, we have those opening up in different areas of the county, and I'm trying to push for more as well. But, you know, it's interesting. We had just closed down these facilities just months ago, thinking that we were out of, you know, this phase of transmission. And here we go again. And I'm very fortunate that um, the leadership has been able to respond and open up these facilities, but we need the public to respond as well and not wait until you know they are infected. Do what they can do proactively. If you're ill, get tested. Make sure that you do not have COVID, or if you do, you know, take precaution or protocol. But let's do what we can even before then and get vaccinated. Something else we've been following here, obviously, with the fallout due to the pandemic, which, of course, now with the, the eviction moratorium not in place, although some counties have enacted their own moratorium on evictions. What concerns you about Cobb County and evictions? Yes, I mean, you know, one of the basic tenets of your community is housing. 
And it is frustrating to know that we have many people who are at risk of losing their homes because of hardships that they've experienced during this pandemic. Um, we are fortunate, as you talked about funding, to have received about $23 million for our, our emergency rental assistance program to assist um, residents um, get help so that um, they can remain in any rental housing that they do have. And Cobb has been a leader as far as um, giving out those funds compared to other governments. But being a leader doesn't mean anything if you're someone who hasn't received funding. Do you all and, still have funding available? People can still sign up yes, to, to apply for People assistance? People can still sign up. Yes, thank you for asking. Um, we've worked with our magistrate court and communications to send flyers out to every uh, multifamily um, unit that we have here in the county that we were aware of just to get people um just to give the information to people so that they can sign up. And we've also had events, two of our commissioners, Commissioner Sheffield and Commissioner Richardson actually went door to door with um, volunteers in their districts too, to let people know about the program. So whatever we can, hopefully this program continues to help get the word out. And where should folks, how can they apply for this assistance? And this is for renters, correct? And yes. is it just for renters or are you also able to send payment directly to landlords? We are sending it directly to landlord, even though it is driven by renters. So the renters will approach one of our organizations and they can go to um, CobbCounty.org to get uh, more information. And um, our, our service providers are actually connecting the, um, the program with the landlord. Chairwoman Cupid, you mentioned political will. Uh, mm -hmm. not, uh, moments ago, you served as the lone Democrat on the Cobb Board of Commission, I think, for a long time, what, eight years maybe? Yeah. Sworn in as chair earlier this year. Speaking of political will and, you know, folks getting along, how's the process been so far? What's the last nine months been like for you, for you all? You know, it's been a transition. Certainly, I think we've had a lot of um, wind beneath our wings coming in as the first female board of commissioners in the county. We've seen a lot of change. We're having um, three of those commissioners be Democrats, also be African-American women. And I think there was just a general pulse looking at how leadership changed across the county that um, residents wanted the county to move forward. However, you know, I've had to... Um, step back a little bit as we've had um, various matters come up where you can tell there is this push and pull between what has been and this new board. And it reminds me of a saying that my old engineering manager used to tell us is that when you're starting something new, you have to go through this um, forming, storming, norming phase. And so we have formed as a new board, as a, as a county with new democratic leadership. However, you know, with some issues, sometimes you have to go through that storm so that we can norm and get to where we ought to be, and then we can get to performing. And so even though, um, we have had some challenges. I can definitely see us coming together and working so that we can pull through and continue to move the county forward on a very difficult um, period that we're having um, with this pandemic. Haven't heard the Stormin' Norman reference in quite a while. Well, what what is, can you give an example of what's been a bit of a challenge in terms of what was the norm and what you all are trying to maybe implement that's new? Oh, uh, certainly. Um, I can even take a look at transportation. You know, um, we are preparing for a transit referendum for next year, and we had to pull back 
on our approach to that, which was uh, a little bit less forward in how we looked at implementing transit throughout the entire county. Mm-hmm. I think with this board, we wanted to see what are all the opportunities that we should be considering, not just for these areas that look like they're interested, but how can we use it to support transportation and transit opportunity throughout the county? And not just for today, not just looking backwards, but this is a 30-year referendum. So we can't just even think about what's on the horizon right here and now, but we have to look at how are we going to help move this um, how are we going to help move transit forward for um, our future, for our children and our children's children? And you're talking beyond just rapid bus? Yes, beyond bus. You know, Cobb County has been in the, in the bus um, world for about 30 years, but certainly we're taking a look at more um, rapid forms of transit and um, potentially looking at um, the cost of heavy rail and seeing if that works for us as well. Well, you all are part of the ATL, which covers, I believe, 13 counties at region, which is supposed to be a collaborative effort through your lens. Is, are they, is Cobb County getting some love, as they say, in, in, included in the plans? Or you feel like y'all kind of left out there kind of, you know, on your own? Fortunately, we're not. I think people were waiting for us. And I think they're surprised to see how um, ready we are. And so we've had help from various organizations. We've met with different leaders across the region to not only talk about opportunity in Cobb, but where is their shared opportunity? You know, 60% of our residents are leaving the county to go to work and same for our employees, we have about 60% coming in. So we can't just think about Cobb as this insular entity. We're part of this region and as Cobb goes, the region goes and vice versa. Just re- just think about this. Back in what, 1964, 65, when all this, when MARTA was created and Cobb County said, ah, nah, leave, leave us out of it. You know, and, and look at us still um, struggling over that decision that's been made several years later. And that just goes to show how important it is not to just think about what's going on today and the impact of that, but how are we helping to frame the future um, through our decisions today? And I think if we can start to think of ourselves as a region, if we can start to think about infrastructure, um, not that's not traditional, but that helps um, usher in um, technology and that helps to provide mobility to everyone, that we'll be in a much better position for um, years to come. And we should note, I'm not picking on Cobb County, I'm just giving y'all facts, so stop emailing me because I already got one that says that wasn't Uh-oh. fair. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's what history tells you. We tell you what history says. Cobb County was not on board right away. Um, then as we wrap up, let's talk about then your priorities going forward still with this commission. Obviously, the pandemic is still number one. Certainly. What are some of your other priorities? Yes, and that was our first goal that we identified. We have five of them. Um, The second one is to address transportation and transit, which we just spoke about. The third one is housing, which we also spoke about. So we're hitting, you know, the main interest that we had as a county. Um, Two more were to address social justice, policing, and equity. And we are actually kicking off a 21-day challenge with United Way coming up. And I'm excited that in our most recent budget, we finally funded um, having a DEI officer for the county to help us move forward issues of um, inclusion for um, our employees and for our citizens and how we engage our businesses. And so those things are hoping um, to move the county forward. Our fifth priority is to address elections and 
we were able to augment the budget for elections um, with this recent budget. We had our challenge just as everyone else in the metro area nationally by having record numbers of people turn out, 400,000 people in the general election last year. We had a lot of long lines and um, we had a lot of staff that was burdened. And so it was incumbent upon us to make sure they had the resources that they needed prior to this new state bill. But now that that's in play, we certainly want to make sure that we'll, we are well resourced so that um, we are in line with what's being expected of us from the state. And with those priorities that you just laid out, Chairwoman Cupid, you have you feel like you have full bipartisan support on half of them, some of them, one, two. <laughs> what is full? Define full. Um, certainly, Adam. No, you define full. <laughs> You're the chairwoman. You have a better gauge than I do. I will say adequate support. Uh, and certainly, we tr- I try to address these issues by having everyone on board. And I always have to tell people, you know, for probably about 90 um, plus percent of our, um, 90% plus of our decisions, all five of us are going to be in agreement. But there's some decisions where we aren't. And, you know, we're fortunate that um, we have enough people to help get us over, um, you know, that three out of five milestone. And so I think for all of these issues, there's been adequate support on our board and fortunately in the community and amongst our staff as we move things forward. Cobb County Board of Commissioners Chairwoman Lisa Cupid, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I'm telling you, debit cards seem to work. Better holla at the cab about that. Now that that um, has been a and something that we are considering and I'm very um, proud of what they're doing in DeKalb County and how they've been able to get people vaccinated and some of those populations that you talked about which have been um, underrepresented. Thank you Commission Commission Chairwoman Lisa Cupid thank you so much I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you likewise take care. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. Also, if you missed any of today's show, it's always online, the entire program, at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.